As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. While making our most recent video on economic megathreats, we were lucky enough to speak to Dr. Nouriel Roubini, who was a senior economist in the Council of Economic Advisers for the Clinton administration, a senior advisor to Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, a professor at Yale, and a consultant to the World Bank, Federal Reserve, and International Monetary Fund. He has more experience dealing with global-level macroeconomic issues than almost any other economist alive, so we were very lucky to be able to ask him his thoughts on some of the biggest problems our economies will face in the coming decades. Dr. Abini, thank you for joining us. Um, so we've got you here and uh, we're going to be talking about some really very important issues. But before we jump into them, uh, just for everyone, I think it'd be good if you could give us uh, a brief history you know, of your background, um, what you do and, and what it is that you, that you talk about. Yes, uh, I'd like to give you a bit of a sense of my background. I'm a, an economist. I grew up in Italy, but before Italy, I lived in Turkey, Iran, and Israel. And um, I did my undergraduate studies in Bocconi University in Milano, came to US for grad school, PhD at Harvard, then a professor at Yale, currently at New York University Stern School of Business. So I started as an academic scholar, uh, but then I had also quite uh, senior policy experience, two years between 98 and 2000, first in the White House Council of Economic Advisors, uh, and then uh, the U.S. Treasury Department dealing with the Asian financial crisis and the global spillover of it. Uh, wrote uh, several books, some academic, uh, some uh, more trade books. I became uh, better known by a broader a uh, group of people as one of the few economists who predicted the global financial crisis of 2007-2009. I'm a public intellectual. I write, I travel around the world, I meet policy leaders, and I talk about uh, a variety of economic, monetary, and financial issues globally in various regions. And of course, in my new book, Mega Threats, I talk also about non-economic threats and how they relate to the economic one. So I'm an academic, I'm a former policymaker. I run a couple of economic consultancies, I'm a public intellectual, so, but all in the world of economics and global macroeconomics. Quite the resume. Now, I'm glad that you brought up the book because I want to speak about it. Mega Threats, the 10 <laughs> Trends That Imperil Our Future. It's quite the title. Um, and I suppose the obvious uh, question to people that haven't picked up the book yet is, what are the 10 trends? Yeah, there are these uh, dangerous trends or mega threats. Some of them are economic, monetary, and financial. Some of them are non-economic. Briefly, the nature of the economic, financial, and monetary threat has changed even in the last few years. You know, two years ago, we were worried that inflation was too low. We couldn't reach even 2%. Now we're worried that inflation is too high in advanced economies and emerging markets. A couple of years ago, 
there was this view of a secular stagnation, too much savings, not enough consumption, demand, mediocre economic growth with the risk of deflation or lowflation. Now we have to worry about the opposite, about stagflation, a combination of high inflation and recession driven by negative aggregate supply shocks. A couple of years ago, we were worried that interest rates were too low. We had zero negative policy rates. You had $18 trillion equivalent of public debt in Europe and Japan. We have uh, negative nominal interest rates up to maturity of 10 years. Today is the opposite. As inflation has been rising, central banks are increasing interest rates. They're rising on the short end, on the long end. Now we have the worry about debt servicing ratio rising and eventually private and public debts becoming uh, unsustainable. You know, a couple of years ago, we were worried about, uh, say, uh, excesses of hyper-globalization. Now we're worrying about uh, deglobalization, protectionism, fragmentation of the global economy, and things of that sort. Uh, so those are some of the economic, monetary, and financial threats. The non-economic ones have to do, one, with a, a geopolitical depression, where there is a, a cold war between great powers, and in some cases a hot war. You know, there's a hot war already with the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that war could become unconventional, could involve NATO. I was recently in Israel, where Israel recognizes now Iran has become a threshold nuclear state. Israel will have to make tough decisions on whether to live with deterrence or strike Iran if that were to happen. You could have a global conflagration in the Middle East and the Gulf and a spike in energy prices worse than 73 Yom Kippur or 79 Iranian Islamic Revolution. And of course, the Cold War between US and China is becoming colder by the day. And both sides are openly talking about the risk of eventually a military conflict on the issue of Taiwan. So we have a, a geopolitical depression, the risk of war among great powers, that they all have nuclear weapons. Uh, we have a global climate change that, as we all know, is causing a huge amount of economic, financial, and human costs. After COVID-19, we know that pandemic, even severe ones, can occur. The next one could be more virulent for many reasons than COVID-19. AI, machine learning, robotic automation, has the promise of uh, increasing the economic pie and potential growth, but it can also lead to permanent technological unemployment, first for blue collars, then for white collars, even for the creative classes. And it may raise, raise uh, income and wealth inequality because it's capital intensive, skill buyers and labor saving. And finally, rising inequality, economic unless of uh, working classes and middle classes, young people will feel that they don't have as much economic opportunity in the future, and maybe they're going to be worse off than their parents, leading also to backlash against a liberal democracy and democratic capitalism and radical extremist uh, populist parties of the extreme right or extreme left are coming to power both in advanced economies and emerging markets. So there is also a political manifestation of this malaise. And all these mega threats, the economic, non-economic ones are, you know, related to each other. You know, I call them mega threats 
but one of the awards of the year, according to the Financial Times, was the term poly crisis, the same idea of economic and non-economic uh, threats that are imperiling our future. I was recently on the stage with the head of the IMF in Washington, presenting and debating my book, Miss uh, Kristalina Georgieva. She gave a speech speaking about a confluence of calamities like we have not seen since World War II. Uh, and uh, I was recently in Davos for the WEF, and right during the week of the WEF, they published their annual global risk report, and it was all about mega threats and polycrisis on economic and non-economic threats feeding on each other. So whether you call it mega threats or polycrisis or a conference of calamities, or as the WEF said, the most turbulent and unstable decade to come in, uh, in recent history and decades of history, uh, I think everybody recognizes that all these interconnected threats that are imperiling not only our economy, jobs, savings and financial wealth, but even the future of the planet and the future of our species, Homo sapiens on this planet. Uh, those are the kind of things that I discuss in the book. Certainly a lot of concerning trends, but I want to um, break them down individually before we talk about how they um, sort of work together to sort of feed off each other, which I think you've already alluded to. Uh, and I want to start with globalization. It's an interesting one that you mentioned. Um, you sort of alluded to the fact that, you know, a decade ago we were concerned about um, hyperglobalization and now we're concerned uh, about fragmenting. <sighs> Now, if I'm a regular person and I've heard sort of globalization is the trend that, you know, my job's going to get taken offshore and shipped to something where they, you know, somewhere where they've got cheap labor or, you know, we don't build anything, uh, you know, in advanced economies anymore. It's all, it's all done by places like China. Um, you know, why should I be concerned about a trend like globalization reversing or, or the shift away from globalization? Um. Well, uh, a shift away from globalization is going to have a meaningful impact on uh, potential growth is one of those uh, stagflationary shocks that can reduce potential growth and increase the cost of production. It's true that uh, globalization has had, uh, you know, winners and losers. Uh, the economic pie has become bigger, but some workers, some firms have been better off. Some of them have been worse off. But a trend away from globalization, actually, I think is going to make, on average, everybody poorer. And the most specific example I can give is the following one. You know, in Europe, the UK decided to go for Brexit. And today, inflation in the UK is already double digits. And even the Bank of England expects that the UK is going to have six quarters of negative economic growth. So there'll be stagflation, recession, and inflation. So while continental Europe, Europe and Eurozone are also challenged, their inflation is lower. And so far, they've avoided an outright recession. While in the UK, there is recession and inflation. You know, UK depends on Russian oil as much or sometimes less than some parts of Europe. So what's the difference between the UK and the Eurozone? I think it's Brexit, because Brexit, by restricting trading goods and services, restricting uh, migration of labor that was helping the UK economy, is a shock that has reduced potential growth, has increased cost of production, caused a recession, and caused the inflation. 
So going away from a world of fair of uh, free trade to a world of fair trade or secure trade, going away from uh, a world of offshoring to a world of French shoring or reshoring, going away from just in time global supply chains to just in case and redundance may provide you greater geopolitical security, but it comes at the cost because you're going to be producing goods and services not where it is uh, most efficient, less costly, but where it's more expensive. And by the way, even if we had the reshoring of manufacturing away from China to Europe and US, that reshoring of manufacturing is not going to create much jobs because uh, it will be reshoring that is very capital intensive. Essentially, new factories based on robotic and automation. And they're not going to use labor intensive uh, uh, kind of techniques of production. So it's costly and it causes then uh, still robotic and automation and acceleration of robotic and automation. So I understand what are the some of the costs of globalization and I discussed them in detail. Winners and losers, somebody, some people left behind, some people taking advantage, but the solution is not to across the board restricting trade in goods, in services, in the movement of labor, capital, FDI, investment, restriction to trade in technology, data and information that reduces growth, causes higher cost of production. There are more sophisticated way of addressing uh, the issues of jobs, of inequality, and therefore we have to go to more nuanced uh, versions of globalization rather than deglobalization, balkanization, fragmentation, decoupling, the lag in 1930s eventually worsened the Great Depression. You mentioned um, geopolitical security as almost a counterpoint. Uh, you know, countries could be more secure if obviously they brought uh, their industries on shore and, uh, you know, had supply chains run internally within the country so they weren't dependent on, uh, you know, potential, uh, you know, geopolitical rivals. Do you think that level of uh, interdependentness that we have uh, has actually in some ways made us more secure because we do depend on uh, countries that we would otherwise be hostile towards? Well, certainly there was a hope that as we become more economically and trade integrated, rivalries will be reduced uh, because there will be economic costs to both sides uh, to that type of a decoupling. But unfortunately, that, uh, that doesn't seem to have been the case, you know. We had the first industrial revolution in the 19th century and the first uh, era of globalization within 1870, 1914. That did not prevent uh, World War I. People said there cannot be World War I because there is so much trade integration among uh, various great powers. And today we have a great uh, trade integration within China, US, Europe. But this uh, Cold War is getting colder. And uh, you cannot totally rule out that eventually there may be a military confrontation. So I do understand the arguments about uh, secure, secure trade and uh, just in case uh, global supply chains and some of the French shoring and reshoring and uh, things of that sort. What I point out is that we may have to make those tough choices to 
partially decoupled from our strategic rivals, whether that's China or Russia or their allies like North Korea or Iran. But that decoupling is going to come at uh, some economic cost. Having more security rather than efficiency of trade is not a free lunch. If our national security and foreign policy objectives require that, decoupling is going to be painful, maybe necessary, if eventually there is going to be conflict, but uh, it's not going to be uh, cost-free. We'll pay an economic cost in terms of lower growth and higher inflation out of that uh, fragmentation and balkanization of the global economy. So we may need to do it, but it's going to be costly. So we have to be aware of it rather than pretending otherwise. Yeah. Speaking of uh, things that are going to be costly and potentially putting us in a more precarious situation, uh, one of the big issues you spoke about was what you called the mother of all debt crises. Um, now, you spoke about uh, GDP, um, uh, sorry, debt to GDP growing from around 200% um, of, uh, sorry, of output in 2000 to 350% of output today. Um, now, explain to me why that's a problem. Now, the typical understanding is that debt's nothing to worry about, uh, especially for advanced economies that get to issue debt uh, in a currency that they control. Why should we be concerned about that trend? Um, well, the trend is uh, in the 70s, actually, the ratio globally was 100, then went to 200, then 350 by last year. In advanced economies, 420. Uh, in uh, China's 330. In typical emerging market, the borrows in foreign currencies, 250. You know, that eventually can become unsustainable. And uh, there are different ways of reducing debts that are unsustainable. You're correct. You know, if you're an emerging market borrowing in dollar or euro, you cannot inflate away the value of your debt uh, through unexpected inflation because devaluation increases the real value in local currency of your foreign currency debt. Advanced economies that borrow in their own currency, in principle, can wipe out the real value of nominal long duration fixed interest rate debt through a bout of unexpected inflation. That's exactly what happened last year because that ratio, they were on a upward trajectory. They corrected downward last year because you had, you know, inflation close to 8% or 10% in US and Europe. But the problem is that uh, unless you have a very high inflation, if not hyperinflation, you cannot really wipe out. So going from an average of two to even the average of six is not going to do the job because one has to be unexpected. Once it's expected, then you have a repricing of short and long rates that go higher, meaning you can fool all of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time. You cannot fool all of the people all of the time. So a bout of unexpected inflation reduces that ratio for a couple of years, but unless then you keep on having higher and higher inflation unexpected. Things uh, get repriced. There is a de-anchoring of inflation expectation. And once they're repriced, then nominal and real yields go higher. So you, you postpone the debt crisis. You're not uh, essentially avoiding them. And having a much higher inflation, double digit, let alone uh, more than double digits or hyperinflation, has huge economic cost, as we know, massive distributional cost. And it's still a form of default, right? You can default 
by defaulting your debt, or you can have a, a more sneaky form of default that is the inflation tax. The inflation tax uh, redistributes income and wealth from savers and creditors who saved to those who borrowed too much, debtors and borrowers. And it's actually an unfair form of taxation because uh, one thing is a wealth taxation legislated by a government, another one is an inflation tax that nobody has decided, but is the outcome of a loose monetary policy. So, so effectively, once you have debts that are unsustainable, either you use the inflation tax, even if you use the inflation tax, eventually you still have a debt crisis. And whenever you have a debt crisis, the economic and financial costs are severe. Traditional debt crises like the GFC have been associated with a severe economic downturn. It's not a free lunch because you have a credit crunch and then people cannot borrow to invest and therefore you have a severe economic uh, downturn. So whenever there is a debt crisis, uh, uh, you're going to end up into significant economic and financial trouble. Uh, it's not a free lunch. It might be necessary, either inflation or default or restructuring or capital levies on wealth or outright expropriation. There are many ways of resolving a debt crisis, but they are all highly costly. Uh, we should not delude ourselves that this is going to be a walk in the park. You've spoken about debt-to-GDP ratios um, and their growth from the 70s to the 2000s to, to today, especially in the po like the wake of the, um, the global pandemic and the stimulus measures that were taken to, to combat that, obviously fueled by a lot of borrowing. Um, I know it's difficult to do, but if you, you know, if you had to put a rate on it, at what point do you think uh, the USA's borrowing becomes unsustainable? Is it currently unsustainable? Is it you know five hundred percent of uh, GDP, a thousand percent of GDP? Where would you put it? Well, the the US has this uh, what is called exceptional, how to say, privilege, because not only is borrowing in its own currency, but is also still the major global reserve currency. So people ask dollars from abroad, not only domestically, uh, as reserves and a store of value. So the U.S. can finance its own fiscal deficits and external current account deficit cheaper and for longer than other advanced economies, let alone emerging markets. But paradoxically, this uh, exceptional privilege makes us actually even more likely to borrow too much and to build up uh, private and public debt, domestic and foreign debt, in ways that eventually may become unsustainable. So the markets, even international investors, are giving us even more rope on which we can hang ourselves, that we're <laughs> going to hang ourselves. What the level of debt is sustainable or not depends on many factors. But the point I make in the book was that while debt ratios in principle were unsustainable, until two years ago, debt servicing ratio, was the interest you paid on your debt, was very low because you had uh, zero policy rates, negative policy rates, quantitative easing and credit easing, keeping even long-term private and public rates low, if not negative. You know, two years ago, there was $18 trillion equivalent of public debt between Europe and Japan that the yield that was negative in nominal terms at maturity up to 10 years. In Scandinavia, like Denmark, mortgages, long-term mortgages had a negative yield. 
because you know you had negative policy rates and the spread of mortgages over that implied negative interest rates on your mortgages so of course that ratio were unsustainable but that servicing ratio were so low that it looked like that's were sustainable and uh, we actually reacted to the gfc and the COVID crisis with more monetary fiscal credit easing zero rates negative even more aggressive quantitative and credit easing but now the party is over and it's over because all this easing led not only to asset inflation but now finally because of negative supply shock and excessive aggregate demand has led to goods and service inflation and central banks now have to increase interest rates uh, to fight inflation but that means that uh, that servicing ratio are rising sharply what you pay for your mortgage for your auto loan for your student loan for your personal loans for your credit card your business loan your corporate debt and of course what government are paying on uh, on their public debt is rising and when those debt ratios are high and sustainable part of the corporate sector part of the household sector part of the financial system some governments are going to end up into debt distress and i think we are on the verge of that happening because now inflation is still persistent i don't think that the fed and ecb can stop at five percent or three percent i think that inflation is going to surprise for many reasons on the upside the fed is going to have to go to a fed funds rate of say six the ecb will have to go to a deeper rate of four and right now it's only two and a half and that's where the economic pain and the financial pain is going to start to hit really hard so far it's easy for them to say we're going to fight inflation and any cost go to two percent because we have not yet had the recession and we have a correction in asset prices but we have not had the real financial prices but when interest rates have to go to six in us or four in the eurozone you're going to say real economic and financial pain and then we'll see where the central banks are going to stick to fighting inflation or where whether as likely as i believe they're gonna blink and wimp out and not raise rates enough causing then a de-anchoring of inflation and inflation expectation and a true weight spiral that's gonna be more costly over the medium term because they're gonna cause like the 70s high inflation and still given supply shocks recession and stagflation so then if you do and then if you don't if you're a central bank you fight inflation you're gonna have an economic and financial crash if you don't fight it you're gonna get and end up with inflation and recession and stagflation so we are already at the point of no return now it's going to be bad for advanced economies but as you mentioned they have a privilege of being able to borrow in their own currencies now i want to speak um briefly about emerging economies um you know particularly you know lebanon sri lanka uh, pakistan we've seen uh, you know, growing problems with uh, their own borrowing that they took on to uh, to fund their growth, uh, growth that was sort of stunted, I suppose, by the pandemic. Um, and now, you know, they're, they're going backwards and losing a lot of the progress they'd made over the past two decades. Do you think we're going to enter, um, you know, a prolonged period where the growth that we saw in emerging markets like you know, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, even uh, China, to a certain extent, uh, is not going to be replicated by you know the countries that are, I suppose, next in line to take to make that transition from you know underdeveloped to developing onto onto being advanced service-based economies. 
Well, probably we cannot generalize even within uh, emerging markets or frontier economies. There are countries with better macro and structural policies. There are countries that are much more fragile. You know, the IMF and the World Bank have identified about 80 countries, mostly poor uh, developing countries, some of them emerging markets like uh, the one you mentioned, uh, that are Lebanon, uh, Pakistan, Zambia, Sri Lanka, that are having a debt crisis. Um, uh, but there are about 80 countries that have debt servicing problems and will have to restructure orderly or otherwise this debt ratio. So there will be a debt crisis in many countries. Now, most of them are small. They're not uh, very large economies. They don't have a systemic effect. It's not a Brazil. It's not, a, a say, a South Africa or not yet. Some uh, large emerging market could still get in trouble. Uh, of course, Argentina again, Turkey, if they continue with the same kind of policies. And now, of course, with a terrible uh, human disaster with the earthquake. But, you know, this country account for at least $500 billion of uh, foreign debt. So they're small, they're not systemic, but the pain for them is going to be severe. And during COVID, uh, you had many shocks for this country. First, the economic downturn. And in many of them, GDP has not even recovered to pre-COVID level. So you've had now three years or four of lost uh, permanent economic growth. Many are very poor. You know, food inflation in advanced economies means that, you know, our food is more expensive. In a poor country, is the difference between, you know, hunger, famine, and starvation, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. So those are the kind of things that threat. And then, in addition to the COVID shock, they had the terms of trade shock, because many of them are commodity importers, and there was a spike in food prices, fertilizer, energy, industrial metals. Many of them had... Uh, high inflation so that to increase interest rates to fight inflation, weaken economic growth. And because until recently the US dollar was strong, in part because of the Fed policy, the currencies of some of these countries were depreciating. And since they have a lot of foreign currency debt, the real value in local currency of their foreign debt was rising, making the risk of a debt crisis worse. So you had the economic shock, you had the terms of trade shock, you had the inflation and interest rate shock. You had the currency and balance sheet and dollar shock. So many of them have become more fragile. That's the bad news. The good news is some of the larger and systemically important emerging markets are still okay for the time being, but just okay. And probably the next decade is going to be a decade in which some of my mega threats are going to materialize. That implies a lower global growth higher cost of production, higher inflation, and even some of the more dynamic emerging markets are going to be more fragile. And by the way, China used to go grow 10% for 30 years, and then potentially became five for a number of structural reasons and aging and uh, bashing the private sector. Potential growth of China is at best today 4%, possibly less than that, uh, 3%. And the trend is going in the wrong direction. And of course, China has been a source of growth for China itself, for emerging markets in Asia, and for commodity exporters that were benefiting from demand for commodity of China that was raising 
at least the terms of trade of those who are commodity exporters. So uh, those trends are going to be, uh, you know, in the in the opposite direction. So overall, I would say it's a more fragile and risky world, one in which growth in advanced economies is going to be weaker. There is a risk of uh, stagflation. There is a risk of financial crisis, and therefore, the golden era of the last uh, 20, 30 years of hyper-globalization that benefited most, uh, not all, emerging markets and even some of the frontier economy may be behind us and the times ahead, even for the average uh, emerging market, is going to be more challenging. Again, there are exceptions. I was recently twice to India and potential growth of India probably now is 6% going towards 7 with the right policies, while Chinese growth that used to be above India now is going to be much lower than India. So India is going to be a rising economic, trading and financial and geopolitical power. So, but then there are other emerging markets, of course, like uh, like Russia, that because of the war, essentially, is going to be in terminal economic decline by not having access to technology of the West. Or South Africa, is another BRIC nation, is going to be having, uh, in spite of its natural resources, lots of economic challenges because of poor policies. Uh, Brazil, you know, is always the country of the future. May not have a financial crisis, but now... Lula is back to power, and we don't know whether Lula 3 is going to be like Lula 1 that was fiscally sound and doing reforms, or like Lula 2 that actually started to be more heterodox in its economic policy in a way that damaged growth uh, of, uh, of Brazil. So, to be seen. And throughout Latin America, now you have a number of populists of the left that have come to power. In uh, Mexico, in Chile, in Peru, in Colombia, in Brazil, not just the traditional Argentina, Venezuela, and so on. And uh, of course, uh, the rise to power of these populists of the left is because, uh, you know, trickle down uh, supply side uh, economic uh, thought in uh, countries that have high inequality did not benefit everybody. And now people say, let's redistribute income rather than trying to grow the economic pie. But if uh, some of these populists of the left are too radical in their economic policies, there could be significant economic damage as well. Uh, so okay. that's the world that many emerging markets are facing. It's a more challenging world than it used to be. Challenging for sure. Yeah, that's um, definitely a, a concerning trend that we've already sort of highlighted. Now, um, uh Given uh, the title of your book and the topic of a lot of your your research and presentations, uh, you've got a reputation as being an eternal pessimist. Uh, Doctor Doom, I believe. I don't know if it's a nickname that you're fond of or that you're you're happy with. I pref I think you prefer Doctor Realist, and um, that's something that I talk about a lot, uh, which is that you know uh, optimistic economists don't do their job very well because uh, the role of an economist is to kind of highlight. Um, potential problems, even if they don't materialize, so that we can work on solutions. Now, say that we face, uh, you know, uh, let's say a worst case scenario where we're looking at all of these economic headwinds um, all coming in together. What would be uh, what would be your solution if you were if you were made king of the world? Well, there's always a question of whether I'm Dr. Doom or Dr. Realist. I prefer Dr. Realist. We have to be aware of threats so we can resolve them. And in the book, for each one of the 10 mega threats, I discuss the solutions in detail. 
but I make the point that the economy recognizes there is never a free lunch. The solution of any kind of issue implies costs and sacrifices in the short run for the common good and the benefit of a society or a country or the world over the medium long term. And many times uh, it's hard to make those sacrifices in the short run because they're individually costly because we discount the future. We hope that maybe some miracle or technology is going to resolve the problems. And politicians that will need to be reelected, and even in an authoritarian country, they need uh, legitimacy. Uh, you know, they tend to kick the can down the road because the political economy of reform is that the costs are in the short run, the benefits are medium long term, and you might not be in power if you do painful reform. You know, the now disgraced uh, former chancellor of Germany, Schroeder. When he was in power, he did the reform, including of the labor market, that led uh, Germany to become uber competitive. But guess what? At the next election, he's kicked out of power. And the lesson for most uh, politicians is don't rock the boat, don't do painful reform, because you're going to lose power. And whether you like it or not, a politician wants to stay in power. They want to get reelected. And therefore, they're unwilling to make the tough choices that they benefit their own country and society over the medium long term. So there are solutions, but we have to be honest that uh, the political economy uh, is such that individually, collectively, nationally, internationally, there are many constraints of doing the right thing. So uh, there is a solution for each one of these threats. But then at the end of the book, I have two scenarios, two chapters, one on a dystopian future where all these threats materialize, feed on each other, it's not just the end of our economy, but the end of the planet, the end of the human species. Or a more utopian scenario where some lack, some good technological innovation and good policy and leadership lead us to gradually resolve these problems and having not maybe an utopian future, but at least not a dystopian one. Unfortunately, in the, in the epilogue, I make the argument that as of now, the dystopian future looks more likely than the alternative, desirable, and optimal utopian future, given all the constraints. But, you know, it's not pessimistic because my view is my book, A Call of Two Arms, right? You know, every time somebody sounds the alarm, we push the snooze button and we go back to sleep, to sleepwalking, to being zombies, and not being aware of what are the threats facing us. We kick the can down the road. We put our head in the sand like ostriches. And what I'm saying is, wake up and realize that we have to address these threats and the sooner we do the more we have a chance to resolve them the more we kick the can down the road the more they become uh, eventually a point of no no return so you know that the very stages say of depression and grief first is denial then anger at what uh, somebody tells you that you have a problem then there is desperation and maybe only after acceptance uh, you are starting to clean up your act and resolve your problems. I think that for a long time we've been in denial. Now people sometimes get angry when people like me warn about their threats. Some people are essentially giving up and becoming desperate, say there is no hope. I said there is hope, but hope starts by stopping denial or anger or desperation. Be aware of your problems and then there are therapies that individually collectively, nationally, internationally, we can do in order to resolve this problem. So it's actually a message maybe of hope. Let's wake up. 
let's be aware and work together to resolve these threats before they overwhelm us. Dr. Rubini, thank you for your time. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.